0: when uh, the d films were all the rage at the cinema some years back, uh, it picks up on this kind of three dimensions, this kind of holistic, uh, rounded approach to apologetics, and I use a number of uh, uh, sets of categories that are three ideas that go together and uh, work together with each other in a very helpful way, I think, so I, I'm really... Uh, pleased to have this opportunity to kind of share this kind of uh, way of thinking about things with you and hope that you find it uh, encouraging uh, and helpful. It's also part of the curriculum, this 3D, there is an article linking to the 3D ticket Yeah, Which we, you'll also find in my uh, my book on apologetics in 3D. There, yeah. plug over. Uh, so, I think basically everyone has, uh, the English word doesn't kind of communicate very well, but... Um, But a spirituality, let's let's call that a way of living, a way of life. Uh, And generally that's a way of life aimed at uh, a good, virtuous, holistic formation, a rounded shaping of what you are as a person. So uh, a way of life aimed at a good shaping of what you are as a person. And a spirituality is made up of three concepts. Uh, uh, worldview assumptions about reality, uh, ideas about reality that you believe are true, or at least uh, are prepared to act on the basis of, combined with attitudes that lead you to actions. So spirituality is this combination, or bringing together of your worldview assumptions, your attitudes and your actions, or another way of putting that would be to think in terms of it a, a spirituality tries to bring together your head and your heart and your hands and i want to emphasize that by by heart talking about heart or attitudes i mean this in a very broad way i don't just mean feelings or emotions although that would be included i would also include here um, commitments Making choices uh, about things. Once you have that kind of scheme, head, heart, hands in mind, you're going all over the scripture. Because I think this analysis of spirituality, that's just how God has made human beings in his image. So here's um, Acts 2.37, where Peter has just given the first uh, apologetic sermon at Pentecost to the crowds and Luke records, when the people heard this, that is the truth claims that Peter was making about Jesus and his resurrection, they were cut to the heart. That is, they, their attitude was a, a positive response to what Peter was saying. Uh, and they, they, they kind of felt it deeply, what he was talking about. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, What shall we do? They wanted to act in response. So this combination of some ideas and their kind of affective heart response to those ideas led them to want to know what to do about this. What do we do in response to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Now this structure of spirituality is, is g- generic, it's general. Um, so you can have, you know, a Buddhist spirituality, which will be a combination of some set of assumptions, attitudes, and actions. Uh, they'll just be, um, at least to some extent, different assumptions, attitudes, and actions than a Christian Spirituality, or a Marxist, or a Hindu, or a Muslim, or a Secular Humanist. Spirituality, way of living. So, to be specific, Christian Spirituality is about God's call to enter into a Christ-centered way of life, that virtuously influences and, and integrates, pulls together, our assumptions, attitudes and actions our head and heart and hands through faithfulness to Jesus as Lord uh, so uh, spirituality is meant to bring this kind of wholeness and Christian spirituality says wholeness comes through dedicating all you are to Jesus as Lord right uh, the Det är alltså såna Det är jätte då då det är det vill jag det har egentligen mycket Ja. Ja, vad det på. Vad du då? Ja. Ja. 11 Now, of course, we live in a world full of numerous and contradictory spiritualities that cannot all be true, because they contradict each other. And as Christians, we would face questions about, well, why follow Jesus? Why have a Christian spirituality? Why be a Christian rather than a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic or a pagan or a Buddhist or a Hindu or all sorts of options out there on the market, as it were. Seeking to give persuasive responses to that question of why follow Jesus can help our own spiritual stability. And it's an important way to obey Jesus' command to love our neighbours. Because if we think that we've got something that is true and good and beautiful in Christ, we would want them to have it as well. So the attempt to offer persuasive responses to questions about why anyone would want to commit themselves to a Christ-centered spirituality is apologetics. Now this word apologetics, and it's it's kind of a really awful word in the English language because modern English people would think you're talking about saying sorry for something, apologizing. Uh, but apologetics comes from a Greek uh, word, apologia, apologia, which was actually uh, the term for a speech making a legal defence in court. Your defence attorney in court made an apologia on your behalf to defend you in court. Uh, hence the title of uh, Plato's famous The Apology of Socrates which is about when Athens uh, took uh, Socrates to court for supposedly corrupting the youth of Athens because he kept asking awkward philosophical questions, which annoyed people. And to to kind of reuse, or re-put in a different context, an an image used by Socrates, I see the, the Christian apologist as a kind of spiritual midwife. And this was a, a phrase that Socrates used of, of his own activities. Uh, I'm a, a philosophical kind of midwife. Uh, that is, we want to be helping people to deliver as strong and healthy a spiritual response to Jesus as, as they can muster, as they can produce. So as I say, to give an apologia is literally speaking, to give a verbal defence. Um, the Apostle Peter very famously uses this term in uh, his letter, of, uh, 1 Peter, in chapter 3. Um, this is verses 15 and 16 of 1 Peter 3. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give, it's something you've got to be able to do, give an answer, apologia. It's the word there, give an answer, give an apologia. To everyone who asks you a reason concerning the hope that is in you. With humility and respect. Having a good conscience. Thus, while you are spoken against as evildoers, they may be disappointed who curse your good way of life in Christ. So you can start seeing how these categories of thinking about Christianity as a way of life in Christ and uh, the the heart as well as the, the head and being prepared to actually do things, stand up for, for your belief in Christ and so on, in a culture that looks upon it as an evil superstitious cult and so on, and starts to come through here. Now, traditionally... Um, kind of uh, post-biblical times, uh, apologetics uh, came to be a kind of branch of Christian theology and uh, moved into kind of uh, the academic world, of course, of discussion and kind of became a very abstract academic discipline. So here's uh, American philosopher-apologist William Lane Craig from his textbook on apologetics, Reasonable Faith, and his his definition of apologetics. He says apologetics is that branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith and my problem with with that is the full stop at the end. <laughs> I don't disagree but I want to add more I want to say that's too too shallow too narrow. Uh, definition. Just a definition of a the What would the here? for The uh, Uh, I mean, an ancient Greek or Roman lawyer would be well aware that there's more to giving a persuasive or convincing speech in court than having good arguments. You need good arguments, but if you're going to be persuasive, you need more than good arguments. So here's uh, American philosopher C. Stephen Evans, who writes that coming to faith is a total transformation of the person. You're coming into a new way of life. Such transformation cannot occur merely through the consideration of evidence. Not merely through the consideration of evidence. Um, Kevin Kinghorn and Jerry L. Walls say, God draws us towards a relationship with him in which we find our ultimate fulfilment, our wholeness. However, the distinction is to be drawn between belief and a relational commitment marked by faith, the goal of the apologist is a relationship marked by faith. And so they urge that biblical apologetics is a holistic, a rounded enterprise. And I've advanced a holistic definition of apologetics grounded in that three-part description of spirituality that we began with. Holistic of thing, So, to put it a little kind of formally, uh, I think of apologetics as the the art and science of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality, and we've already looked at what Christian spirituality means, Uh, through the responsible use of rhetoric, and I'll unpack that in a moment as being objectively, discoverably, beautiful, good and true or reasonable to accept. So the art and science of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality rather than any other through the responsible use of rhetoric as objectively beautiful, good and true stroke reasonable to say, we've already looked at Christian spirituality, so I don't need to dive into that, but let's unpack that this responsible use of rhetoric, which goes back to, already mentioned, Aristotle, 4th century BC Greek uh, philosopher, he wrote one well, the first textbook that we know of on rhetoric, and he said that rhetoric is the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. So it's kind of uh, not what most adverts do when they try and persuade you to buy something. Most adverts don't try to get you to notice what is persuasive or true or good or beautiful about a product. Uh, They try and persuade you to buy that product through all sorts of other uh, means and associations uh, and so on. Um, But this is not about kind of manipulating people through kind of uh, advertising methods or political rhetoric, as we call it in our culture. This is about noticing that something is true or good or beautiful and thus attractive about something. And then thinking, how can I help these people who haven't noticed that yet, how can I help them to notice what is true and good and beautiful about, well in this case, a life of following Christ. So rhetoric encompasses the principles of how best to help an audience make those same objective observations. And, um, you know, there's a whole kind of philosophy that we could go into here about the difference between objective and subjective. I think the the easiest way I can uh, explain it is to say something is objective if it's not something you invent, not something you or your culture make up, but it's something that you discover in reality. I think that's kind of... The key idea there. So, in a very famous passage in On Rhetoric, Aristotle said that there were these three different modes or ways of helping an audience to be persuaded when you're making a speech. He says, of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are these three kinds. The first kind, ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker. Do I seem to you like a reliable chap? who probably knows what he's talking about and isn't just trying to persuade you so I can get your money. (sighs) The character of the speaker. That's really talking about, do I seem good in, in this relationship to you? The second means, in Greek, pathos, depends on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. and He's really talking here about Helping them to be attracted towards what you're talking about. Getting them to notice beauty. And the third method, it, called logos, um, a Greek word famously used by St John at the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was the word. Yeah, so we can't say it a word, but it's a very rich term in the Greek. It can kind of mean rational communication. Um... The third, the logos, on the proof or the argument that you make provided by the words of the speech. So there, of course, he's he's talking about helping people to notice what's true through giving them a good argument. So we've got the goodness of character, the beauty that attracts and the argument that persuades towards what's true. Now, interestingly, in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, here's St. Paul using exactly the same categories from Aristotle's rhetoric in the same order that Aristotle lists them. And Paul is giving advice about evangelism. He says, when you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Have good ethos. And hold their interest when you speak the message. That's pathos, holding their interest. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. And that's clearly about logos. right? It reminds you of 1 Peter 3.15 as well. Give answers to anyone who asks questions. So here's Paul talking about ethos and pathos and logos in Christian evangelism. As uh, James Herrick explains, when we express emotions and thoughts to other people with the goal of influencing or persuading them, we engage in rhetoric. And that's a a slightly broader definition than Aristotle, who was very focused on making a speech uh, in Athenian political culture and so on. Uh, Notice by this definition, rhetoric is not just limited to words. So uh, William Dembski. Uh, says that Christian apologetics needs to go at pathos much more deliberately. Activating people's imagination through pictures, intuitions, stories will be crucial here. And Christian apologists need to incorporate such tools into their toolbox, their tool chest. In sum, if apologetics is going to be an effective instrument for moving our cultural environment closer to the kingdom of God, it needs to take full advantage of the three appeals of persuasion, logos, ethos, and pathos. Uh, Logos, uh, I've got a couple of chapters in my textbook, uh, Faithful Guide to Philosophy, that take you through the the very basics of how to argue well and how arguments can uh, go wrong. Uh, in ethos, you know, that person of good character. Um, here's an interesting quote I came across from um, a conversion research uh, done by uh, Jana Harmon. said, skeptics see religious believers as a group wholly unlike themselves, from naive, gullible, and or stupid, to narrow-minded and even evil, posing a social or political threat to education and society. That's what people think of Christians in much of Western culture. These negative stereotypes then prompt dismissal of Christians and Christianity without thoughtful consideration. When Christians are found to be surprisingly intelligent, loving or genuine, unfavourable perceptions are challenged and that resistance is disarmed sceptics can find themselves attracted to that which they once held in contempt. One quarter of former atheists, 24% former atheists, reported that care and concern from Christians attracted them towards God after a personal crisis. So their prejudice against Christianity started changing When a Christian in their life was loving and helpful when they had a crisis. And that then opened them up to to seriously considering Christ. In pathos we're asking, is whatever is X aesthetically excellent? Is it beautiful? As Paul says in Philippians, whatsoever is, is admirable. Not that you happen to like but which is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, it's worthy of praise, it's again objective, think about such things. So, the late Timothy Keller and his, we to yeah, yeah. Uh, do he, Paul is not talking about Christians up here, thinking about biblical ideas, that could be relevant, I Think what's uh, could you mention some examples What what, what Paul would, 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 um, uh, would indicate here? What, what do you think he wanted us to admire that's not just inside the Christian faith? Yeah, well, the, the idea that there are, are, are things that are just inside the Christian faith kind of draws on this sacred, secular kind of divide. And although we, we set aside some things for, you know, particularly for the service of God, the biblical worldview is, of course, that the whole world is God, and God's, and everything in it. You know, God in the Old Testament saying, you know, that the cattle of a thousand hills are mine. Cattle are great, they're God's idea. You know. um, <laughs> they have a certain beauty uh, to them and so on, thinking about uh, the admirable qualities of your, your, your herd of cattle and, and how to look after them well and how to look after the environment that God has called us to be stewards of. And you know, so th- don't just kind of think, oh, churchy things, and then there's all this secular stuff. <laughs> it's like, well, the whole God made the cosmos, and even that word in the Greek means an ordered beauty. That's why you, you have cosmopolitan magazine, beauty magazine, from the Greek word cosmos. And and Paul wants us also to admire things that non Christians are different. good in sport, yeah. are they intelligent? Are they caring? Are they good architects? Like mm. you see? So Paul is encouraging us yeah. not to divide the world into biblical physical things of the rest, but whatever is desirable. Mm. we you see this in, um, in Acts 17, when Paul is talking with the philosophers in, in Athens. In the, the speech that he gives there, he quotes from several pagan Greek poets and thinkers uh, in an approving way to, to, to back up a point that he wants to make to that audience because those are kind of authorities that they know about and they don't know anything about the Old Testament and so on. But he quotes those Greek thinkers when he's, when he's able to say, yeah, what they said there is true. And that was one of the quotes in a poem to Zeus. Paul knew that by heart. And used the quote to Zeus, applying that to God and to his Jesus. Uh, and of course Paul would say, Well, Zeus isn't, isn't real, but this 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 attitude, this, this line from this poem does capture something true about religion and spirituality, yeah. which I can affirm. Yeah the idea that generally the kind was the point in the poem. Mm. God is certainly not there, right? Yeah. Uh, in him we live a smooth and humble being. That's yeah. one's So it's Paul admiring what's in, the po- in popular culture, for example. Of course, he is he, there to critique a lot of their popular culture, yeah. but he is concerned to critique what is untrue or uh, evil or ugly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And to affirm wh- whatever is true and good uh, and beautiful. Uh, because he believes that ultimately all truth and goodness and beauty comes from God and is incarnated uh, in a scene in Christ. So as uh, late Timothy Keller uh, said, just to finish up with a couple of quotes. Timothy Keller says, people change not by merely uh, changing their thinking, but by changing what they love most change happens not just by giving the mind new arguments, but also feeding the imagination new beauties. Uh, Harmon again says, the majority of former sceptics in my research first decided Christianity with good or attractive as something they desired, before they became willing to look and see whether it was true. Um, and so in apologetics we can think about you know, how can we use uh, aesthetics well, that the literary quality of our writing, the, the oratory qu- quality of our speaking, the aesthetic quality of our uh, PowerPoints, uh, and, and so on. <laughs> um, even w- in a field like arguing for God, on the left here, here's a, a modal uh, logic, ontological argument for the existence of God, uh, set, out, uh, set out in uh, formal philosophical logic. Um, you may or may not think that that is a a, a good argument, but um, certainly presenting that to most audiences, they're not going to find it convincing because they haven't even a clue what's going on there, right? I'd have to give you a whole course (laughs) for you to understand that. On the other hand, if I want to try and get people thinking, oh, maybe there's a God, and I just put up this picture and I say, look at that. Probably a lot more people will find that persuasive even though that's not even an argument. <laughs> I think you could make a good argument, but I think people can intuitively see a connection between that and God that a good design argument could uncover in a more formal way, as it were. Um, our time is... is uh, getting uh, away with this, So I, I have some examples of people who were like, started thinking about Christianity or became converts because they, they listened to the music of J.S. Bach. And that was the thing that kind of did it for them, uh, for example. Um, historically, Christian has Christianity has informed some art of some very low and some very high quality. And even today, there is plenty of good Christian art uh, to be found amongst uh, all of the kitsch uh, Christian art that's unfortunately out there as well. Uh, if you go onto my uh, website, you see I even dabble in this myself. There's a little composing section of my website, and I can, uh, some of my music I compose is kind of uh, explicitly kind of Christian music. Um, but again, I, I view all music as a, a kind of gift from God, as it were. Um, and finally, this. Uh, thinking about these the these three elements of rhetoric, which kind of go with these three elements of spirituality, and connecting this to the, the true and the good and the beautiful, um, John Cunningham says, the true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. The good is that which is worthy of choice. This, this worthiness of these things, and actually they connect together because... Good things are beautiful. When you say um, that rainbow is beautiful, I think what you're doing is you're basically saying it is good to admire the qualities of that rainbow. And of course, I'm saying it is true that it is good to admire (laughs) that. So as Alistair McGrath, who was our uh, speaker this week at the the, the Symposium at the Veritas Conference uh, in Grimstad, Uh, in his book The Passionate Intellect, uh, says, Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. Apologetics engages not only the mind, but also the heart. There we go.